Welcome to the special presentation of St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, Catechesis from the Cathedral. Join Father Adam Streitenberger on a tour of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In today's episode, Father Streitenberger covers paragraphs 268 to 354, Why is the World Imperfect? Here's Father Streitenberger. Enjoy! Well, good evening, everyone. Um, Today we are um, going to go over, beginning with paragraph 268, and we're going to cover through paragraph um, 324. Originally, I had planned to go a little bit farther, but I thought um, we would just stop there. Um, But Both of these two sections that we're going to be covering deal with creation and also deal with um, the reality of sin or the reality of evil. Now you might think that wouldn't it be great to just do one on creation and then another on sin, but they're just as we know in this fallen world, they're intermingled. And so in, in the case of the catechism, um, not to get too far ahead on that topic, we will, we will go into that a little bit. But I did want to just kind of touch on a couple points about the Trinity. So as we're going through the creed, we have already professed that we believe in the Father, and God the Father. And so last week, we went through the Trinity, the, the church's teaching of the Trinity, this great mystery, that God is one, but three divine persons who are really distinct from another, and that those three divine persons are related to one another. And in fact, it is in their relation to one another that they are truly distinct, that we are able to identify them and know them by name as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We talked about, and this was sort of at the the very tail end of the class last time, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, are continually giving themselves, pouring themselves out to each other for all eternity and at every single moment, really. We call this, by the fancy word, the circumcessions, or the Greek is perichoresis, circumcession or perichoresis. This means essentially the the circular giving to each other. So the Father pours himself to the Son, and together they pour themselves out to the Spirit, who himself pours himself into the Son and with the Son back to the Father. So this sort of cycle. this continual giving and receiving, or exiting and returning is another, another kind of language that is used for it. What is happening for all eternity 
in this sort of invisible way also happens throughout history. And what we call the divine missions, the divine missions. Mission meaning to send or to be sent. And the divine missions point to what is called the economic trinity or the divine economy. So the Father sends the Son from all eternity, and with the Son sends the Holy Spirit. So that sending are their divine missions. The Son has a divine mission. The Holy Spirit has a divine mission. Now, their missions are one and the same. But this mission, these missions, or this mission if you want to see them as a unity, is seen visibly in the history of creation. In three, the three crucial actions of this economic trinity, creation, redemption, and sanctification. All three persons are, are at work in these three, these three works. And the way that they're at work, on the one hand, is what is unique about each of the persons. And in, and in some ways resembles this sort of invisible trinity, the trinity in itself. This circumcession, this perichoresis, this continually giving and receiving or exiting and returning of the three persons. So in creation, and we hear this in Genesis, and we're going we're gonna to get this reinforced as we go through creation in the next couple sections, but the Father, as we hear in Genesis, the Father speaks the Word, the second person, He speaks and he breathes on creation, the Holy Spirit. So the very act of creation entails the Father sending the Son and the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and also, then the Holy Spirit returning to the Christ, to the Son, and with the Son to the Father. So it's a return as well. Redemption, which is the work of, of sort of, of, of re-sanctifying, re-redeeming the world, of returning the world to the Father. The Father sends the Son. We see this in His incarnation. He sends the Son with the Holy Spirit. And then sanctification is how we are united to Christ and to the redemption the life of grace, the life of the sacraments. So, for instance, the Father sends Christ, sends the Son, who gives us the Holy Spirit, and with the gift of the Spirit we are united to Christ and then brought to the Father. 
So again, this return, we see this element of return. Now, we associate these three works with a particular person. So when we think of the creation, we often think of the Father who is unbegotten. When we think of the redemption, we we often think of the Son who has become incarnate. And when we think of sanctification, we think of the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit that makes us holy. But we're reminded that all three persons are at work in each of these works. It is a work of the whole Trinity. And so these paragraphs, um, really um, 255, but especially 257, 258, and 259, and 260, is this explanation of these missions and the divine works of creation, redemption, and sanctification. I think what we really have to remember is that all three persons are involved in all of the works of the Trinity, but they work according to what is distinctive about them. So as remember, the Father is the unbegotten one who sins. The Son is the begotten one who is sent. The Holy Spirit is the one sent by the Father and the Son. And it is the Spirit who returns to the Son and ultimately to the Father. So I think it's it's important to remember this or to, to kind of at least recap this as we begin the next sections of the Catechism, which deal with this first great work, the creation. In the Creed, we are, if we might go back to where we, um, what we're following, the outline that we're following, both the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, we're reminded in both of them that I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen in the case of the, Creed, of the Nicene Creed. So we begin this section on 268 professing the Almighty, God the Almighty, which paragraph 268 tells us is the one divine attribute that we publicly profess in the creed, that God is all-powerful, omnipotent, almighty, and that that almightiness, that omnipotence, is expressed in creation. Now, as I was saying, these sections that we're going to be covering um, deal with, first of all, creation. So we're going to cover um, God as the creator and how he creates, and with it, the initial response to the problem of evil, that if God is good and has created the world, Why is there evil in the world? But in this section, the catechism doesn't completely exhaust that that question, the answer to that question. 
for two reasons. First of all, because the answer to that question can never be exhausted. It is a mystery in some sense. But also, and that's what we'll cover next week, is that when we look more deeply at the creation of intelligent beings, both the angels and human beings, and when we reflect on their creation and how they were created, we also have to reflect on their fall, the fall of both the angels and of human beings. So this week we're going to look at God the Creator and the, from, and the problem of evil. If God is the Creator, why is there evil? And then next week we're going to look at the similar ideas, created beings, what are the angels and how are they created? What is human person and how were they created? How was the human race created? And then also the idea of the fall, the introduction of moral evil and of sin into the world. So they do kind of parallel each other these, these next two weeks. They will be different. I won't, I won't repeat myself next week. Um, they'll be significantly different. But there is a sort of parallel between, um, between the two. So we believe in God the Almighty. Um, in the, the ter- paragraphs 269, we are reminded that God does whatever he pleases. God does whatever he pleases. That is part of this being almighty. So we talk about um, God's intellect and will. The divine intellect and the divine will. Now, when we think of human beings, intellect and will are different faculties, different parts. So by my intellect, by my reason, I can come to know the world. And then by my will, I can make a choice, render a decision, hopefully based on what my intellect is telling me. Of course, in God, because he's radically one, these things aren't separate. And that's the problem when we think of God and that he is radically free to do whatever he wills. We might think that that means that he is able to contradict himself. And of course that then would separate, not only that would set up contradiction in God, but also somehow that his will and his intellect are, are separate, are different, that he's somehow not one. I think we see this in religions, in the modern world, in our contemporary world, in which God says one thing, but then later contradicts himself. So, for instance, that God has fully revealed himself in Jesus Christ, but then others might say, well, well, because of something that humans did, Or because God changed his mind, he added, he sent a new prophet, even though Jesus was the fullness of revelation. Or that um, Jesus had to go and visit another continent and reveal himself. 
Or we might see it that God has established moral truths and moral teachings, but somehow he doesn't hold everyone to them. So he says, do not kill innocent human life, but yet in this you know, particular instance, you are able to kill innocent human life. So these, or that God says you shall not lie, but if it benefits the progress of religion, well, then you can be dishonest in that situation, you know. So these are real problems. This idea that, um, yes, God is completely free and to do whatever he pleases, but that never contradicts himself because his intellect and his will are one. In this section of the Catechism, especially, the authors are really dialoguing with the modern world, and that's why I think this is a very rich section for our work in the new evangelization. Um, It really helps us, it gives us the tools that we need to dialogue with the world around us. In 270 and 271, we are told that the Lord is merciful to all, for you can do all things. In 271 in particular, God's almighty power is in no way arbitrary. In God, power, essence, will, intellect, wisdom, and justice are all identical. Nothing, therefore, can be in God's power which could not be in his just will or in his wise intellect. And this is, of course, setting up in God's will and his intellect that he, of course, knows all things. He knows all things. And in that sense, he permits all things. So there's going to be two understandings or two, we might say, aspects, not parts because it's one, but two ways in which God wills things in the world. His permissive will, in which he permits things, and his sovereign will, in which he intends things. So already we're beginning to to set up the problem of evil. In paragraphs 272 through 274, the Catechism proposes to us, um, I think, an obstacle that we all face. And, And if we don't face this, I would say that we're trying to escape from humanity. We're trying to hide the fact that we're human. And that is that sometimes it appears as if God is powerless. That when we see evil or suffering in the world and God doesn't seem to intervene, or at least from our perspective, it seems as if God doesn't intervene. This should upset us. At times, we should be shaken by this. When atheists propose this, and I think a lot of times, you know, from my own personal experiences, I think a lot of of modern atheism or secularism or this sort of idea of nons, people with no religious identity, 
A lot of it is is because they don't quite understand the relationship between science and faith. I think that's that's very common. But I think there's even more fundamental reasons. And one of them is the problem of evil and suffering. All of us at some, at some point have someone or we personally in, in, endure suffering. We witness evil. And so there is this temptation for each of us to, um, to lose faith because it, we can't understand how God is at work in these things. So the Catechism acknowledges this. God can sometimes seem to be absent and incapable of stopping evil. But in the most mysterious way, God the Father has revealed His almighty power in the voluntary humiliation and resurrection of His Son by which He conquered evil. So first of all, I think when we encounter people who perhaps don't believe because of suffering, because of the evil in the world, we can never really, um, and this might just be in the sense not even people who lack faith, but when we counsel people or when we run into people who are suffering or when we talk to people, we really can't give them a trite answer, you know, oh, well, you know, everyone suffers or, you know, um, you can bring something good out of it or, you know, like, you know, God has his reasons or whatever. We have to really be careful on how we answer it because we really do not understand people's unique sufferings. It's unique to them. It's not our own. And so we can't kind of just dismiss it. We have to take real the situation of their suffering. And ultimately, there is no easy answer to suffering or to evil. But the fullest answer, the answer which God provides, is Jesus Christ himself. It's ultimately in Christ, in the fullness of his life, that we find some, some way to make sense out of evil. It's still a great mystery. But ultimately, the answer to suffering and to this apparent powerlessness of God is in Jesus Christ. In paragraph 273, only faith can embrace the mysterious ways of God's almighty power. Um, There is this sense where we can't really fully make sense out of it. It goes on in the next paragraph, 274, once our reason has grasped the idea of God's almighty power, it will easily and without any hesitation admit everything that the creed will afterwards propose for us to believe, even if they be great and marvelous things, far above the ordinary laws of nature. So the Catechism points that this idea of God being in complete power and control, even though at times it seems as if we're the ones in control, or that evil is what is in control, we have to kind of embrace the fact that because God is God, He is good and He is in control of the situation. Which therefore means that this situation somehow points to the good. This is a great mystery, 
And as the Catechism says, it really requires faith. But for us to have this, I think, strong faith, or for us to strengthen our faith, to train our faith, we also have to kind of meditate on this truth which is revealed, which is God is almighty. He is all-powerful. He is the one in control. So then we progress in going into the um, God as the creator himself. In 282, catechesis on creation is of major importance. It concerns the very foundation of human and Christian life, for it makes explicit the response of the Christian faith to the basic question that men of all times have asked themselves. Where do we come from? Where are we going? What is our origin? What is our end? Where does everything that exists come from? And where is going? Where is it going? So, in addition, so I think it's it's kind of very beautiful. This section of the catechism is that it's starting from what's in the human heart and the fundamental questions of the human heart. So, the first question that it proposes an answer to is, what about the sense that God seems powerless at times? The Catechism reminds us, well, God is almighty. He is the Creator, the almighty Creator. And therefore, in faith, we recognize that He is in control even when it seems dark and bleak and it's all over with. In this next section, the Catechism wants to address these questions, which we all have, I think, from time to time in our life, but which really, I think, should be a part of on our hearts all the time, and that is, what is our origins? Where are we going to? How did we come about? These questions that deal with creation. And the Catechism proposes, listen, let's take these questions seriously. Not just dismiss them, but let's take them serious because they're universally on the human heart. And let's look at it. And God has addressed these questions in revealing himself as creator. The catechism then goes through in the next three paragraphs saying, look, these questions are fundamental, and humans have tried to answer it, and they continue to try to answer it in different ways, but in unsatisfactory ways. So the first way is to try to answer our origins and why we are and where we're going from the perspective of science. In paragraph 287, uh, 283, the Catechism affirms the natural sciences. Just as the Catechism affirms human reason, we can know things about the world. We can know how it develops, how it works, how it's interconnected. And the study of the sciences fill us with wonder and awe, but they do not answer the fundamental question of how the world came into existence, from nothing into something. Nor does it answer what is the goal of the world of creation and where is it going towards. Another approach, an important approach, is philosophy itself. 
looking at these questions of being and non-being, the origin of the world. Is the universe governed by chance, blind fate, anonymous necessity, or by a transcendent, intelligent good? These kind of, fun, these kind of questions, which are assisted by reason in the study of philosophy and metaphysics, are crucial, but in the end of the day, they are not going to fully answer these questions either. There has also, through the course of this philosophical development, been different approaches. And that's in paragraph 285. There are essentially five approaches which the catechism identifies. Some of these are ancient philosophical attempts to try to explain the world. Some of them are quite modern and are present with us. And I would say all of these in different shades are still present with us. And so therefore, I think this paragraph 285 is is very important for us in dialoguing with the world that we live in and with the different people and cultures um, that are present um, and the different kind of approaches in life. One of the difficulties of the new evangelization, say to like, in comparison to like a missionary going to some sort of tribe in the Amazon, is that when that missionary goes to the tribe in the Amazon, those people are all on the same page. They come from the same culture. They have the same worldview, the same understanding of the world, usually the same ethnic ethic ethical um, kind of concepts. But in our secular world, every human being in American society, say, or in the Western world, say, has their own view of the world, how the world um, has been made, what the world consists of, and, and to that point also, their own ethical view of things. This makes the task of the new evangelization difficult to even try to figure out where each person stands, what their particular issues may be. And so paragraph 285 gives us these five kind of major models um, of dealing with the world, of understanding the world. And I think in our own age that most people are some mix of of a couple of these five of five positions. The first one is pantheism. Pantheism is this sense, it's defined, um, that everything is God, that the world is God or that the development of the world is the development of God. God is the world or the world is God. We are all God. Now, We should say that in the paragraphs that follow this one, um, and it really helps us to understand, I think, these subsequent paragraphs, um, paragraph 285 does, because the catechism for the next couple paragraphs is trying to um, dialogue or you might even say debunk some of these, these positions. And as those arise, I'll try to point them out. The next position 
is this idea of um, emanationism, emanationism. Others have said that the world is a necessary emanation arising from God and returning to him. That the world is just... So rather than all the world, all of creation, all things being God, which really means they would not be creation, it's just God. So like the stand is God, or the flower is God, or the, the lightning bolt is God, um, or I am God and you're God. Um, this idea of emanation is that we, ver- we share in the very substance of God, almost like an amoeba, if you know what amoebas are, you know, the big slimy things, floating things, that, you know, God just kind of, a piece of him just kind of slips out or breaks off, but it's coming right back. It's going to get kind of consumed back in. This idea that the substance of God is something different than we are. That's, that's our position, as opposed to just being part of the, the, um, the sliminess of God. Not that God's slimy, but... Um, a little bit further, um, so the third is what we call dualism or manichaeism, which is that there are two eternal principles in conflict with each other. Good versus evil. Light versus darkness. That there is a good God versus an evil God and that they're fighting it, fighting it out. And so some things, um, like material things, are on the side of the evil God and spiritual things are on the side of the good God. According to some of these conceptions, so based on dualism and Manichaeism, but going a little bit further, the world, at least the physical world, is evil, the product of the fall, and is thus to be rejected or left behind. This is Gnosticism. It's the fourth error, that the fourth kind of um, worldview that is rejected here in the Catechism. So this idea of Gnosticism is that Physical things are evil. Christopher Dawson, I think it was Christopher Dawson, said that every heresy is a form of Gnosticism. Somehow we're suspicious of material things. Or that the incarnation, that God really became human, that he really took on human nature, is somehow... um, has to be wrong because there's something inherently wrong with material things. The next is deism. Some admit that the world was made by God, but as a watchmaker who, once he has made the watch, abandons it to itself. So God makes this watch, the world, and he starts it, and then he lets it run on its own. This is a particularly modern concept. I think it's it's really very prevalent in our own culture, as is Gnosticism, um, as is, you know, pantheism and and emanationism and dualism in some sense. But deism, as we know, really, you know, the founding fathers of America were deists. 
Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, these kind of figures, that God really is kind of remote and distant from the world. Finally, others reject any transcendent origins of the world, but see it as merely the interplay of matter that has always existed. We call this materialism. So all that there is is just matter. So these five um, modern, these five kind of schools of thought, these five worldviews are are present. Their attempts to try to address these fundamental human questions. But the Catechism says is that it's ultimately divine revelation which gives us the answer to these fundamental human questions. We know that in 286, we know that the existence of God the Creator can be known with certainty through His works by the light of reason, even if this knowledge is often obscured and disfigured by error. The Church affirms, yes, we can know from our reason in looking at the world that there is this God who is our Creator. However, it is sometimes obscured and disfigured by error, but is reinforced most especially by the gift of divine revelation. The truth of creation is so important in 283, 287, for all of human life that the that God in his tenderness wanted to reveal to his people everything that is salutary to know on the subject. We've got to get this question right. We've got to get this answer right. Because this is the answer which addresses these questions on our heart of where we came from, how we came into being, and where we're going. And so, yes, human reason can come to a knowledge that God exists, But God really wants us to get this right. And so he has revealed that he is our creator and how he has created us. The revelation of creation is inseparable from the revelation and forging of the covenant of the one God with his people. So it's interesting that in the course of divine revelation as God is introducing himself to his people, to us, to the human race, he reveals that he is our creator. And he adds a little bit more to that over time, how he is doing that, why he is doing that. It is, in some ways, um, you know, if you think about, I mean, this idea of divine revelation, um, God and the human race becoming accustomed to each other, at least the human race becoming accustomed. It is very much like marriage. So, you know, there was a time when couples married very young, you know, some in their teens, sometimes in their early 20s. Oftentimes they did not even know themselves. And I would even say that even people who marry in their 30s don't really know themselves either. But there was also a point where they had not really become their full selves. Um, The idea is that as they gradually came to know each other, they also came to know themselves. 
And I think this is the idea, at least from the human, human perspective, the human aspect. As God reveals himself to us gradually and as this relationship develops, we also come to know what it means to be human. And that's why this question of creation um, is so important. Because as we come to know how God created us and why he created us, we actually come to know what it means to be human and what we're all about. Which is why these two, chap- these two sections, the ones that we're covering this week and the ones that we're covering next week, are so interrelated. Because we can only know what it means to be human by knowing how God made us and why he made us. In 289, we are told something which is going to be fleshed out in more detail in the next sections, but that from the scriptures, from the divine revelation, especially the first three chapters of Genesis, we come to understand what God is communicating and what he is saying about creation. And it tells us in that paragraph to read those first three chapters. From a literary standpoint, these texts may have had diverse sources. The inspired authors have placed them at the beginning of Scripture to express in their solemn language the truths of creation. And so some of the truths which are conveyed in those first three chapters of Genesis, so when we read those, we keep these questions in mind, is the origins of creation, its end in God, its order and goodness, the vocation of the human person, and then finally the drama of sin and the hope of salvation. Those are really the five fundamental questions in 289 that we should be asking when we read those first three chapters of Genesis. What's it saying about those? In paragraphs 290 through 292, we are reminded something which I've already harped on enough probably today, but it bears repeating, that creation is the work of of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it even uses this idea from Genesis of the Father speaking the Word and breathing the Spirit. In paragraph 293, I think um, what we hear is one of the reasons, the reason why God has created the world. And that is to reveal His glory. So when we ask the question, why has God created the world? The answer is to reveal his glory. Not to increase his glory as if he needed, you know, to have his ego stroked or something like that. But in order to communicate it. To show it. To reveal it. And ultimately, therefore, it is an act of love and goodness. And it's interesting is that the glory of God is is revealed in his love for us and his goodness for us, which is so often experienced as his humility. 
which gives us a new approach to living. That if the glory of God is experienced in his humility, in the fact that he loves us, even though we are um, often unworthy of that love, I think this shows us that really what is our glory about? Well, I think the greatest glory that we can reveal, and I think maybe the greatest thing that could be said about us at our funeral is that this person was humble. The glory of God in 294 consists in the realization of this manifestation and communication of his goodness for which the world was created. God made us to be his sons through Jesus Christ. It quotes St. Irenaeus, who is the catechism's, must be the catechism's famous or most favorite father of the church. The glory of God is man fully alive. God has created the world in some, we can understand it, to show his love to the human race, to the human person, to reveal his love to the human person so that that human person may be fully alive, sharing in the life of the Trinity, not just having some knowledge of God or a relationship with God, but actually being inserted into that, what we call the perichoresis, the divine circumcessions, the relationship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit with each other. The ultimate purpose of creation is that God, who is the creator of all things, may at last become all in all, thus simultaneously assuring his own glory and our beatitude. The mystery of creation we then go into. God creates by wisdom and love. We are reminded that God is completely free. He does not need to create. He is not bound by necessity. We believe that creation proceeds from God's free will. He wanted to make his creatures share in his being, wisdom, and goodness. God creates out of love. It is an act of love. Just as the Trinity reveals its um, kind of this relationship in which the Father pours himself out to the Son, the Father and the Son pour themselves out to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit pours himself back into the Son and the Father, this kind of complete giving of love. This is really the model the way in which God creates is this pouring forth of himself out of love. We're told in 296 through 298 that the world is created out of nothing. Or what we say, ex nihilo, the Latin ex nihilo, from nothing. That it's not an emanation from divine substance but it's something new, something which wasn't there, which is now here. And that God did not use any sort of pre-existent matter. If that was the case, then there would be two gods. There would be God and this pre-existent matter. God created out of nothing. Now, to say that the human race or 
um, the planet Earth may have been created from some matter that existed before they were formed is possible. Um, I mean, that's, that's not contradictory. But the very beginning, there was nothing but God. This, in paragraph 298, gives us hope. Because if God creates out of nothing, if he can create a world out of nothing, then he can certainly give life to the dead or call into existence those things which do not exist or to make light shine in darkness. In some ways, this idea that God has created out of nothing fills us with hope and encouragement. God creates an ordered and a good world in 299. Because God creates through wisdom, his creation is ordered. So because God creates with his intellect, there is rationality, there is reason in the world. There's a plan. This is, this is crucial. So this is kind of a foundation stone for what we're going to launch into in the very next section, which is on divine providence. So we're already told that because God is truth, because he has this intellect, he has built the world with meaning, with significance, with a plan. Our human understanding, which shares in the light of divine intellect, can understand what God tells us by means of his creation, though not without great great effort. Because God has created the world with understanding, we are able to understand it because God has given us this gift of reason. Because creation comes forth from God's goodness, it shares in that goodness. So because God is good and he has created the world, it is therefore good. The world is good. Everything that has being, everything that has been created is somehow good. It shares in goodness. God has created the world out of goodness and out of truth, but he also transcends creation. And this is a beautiful mystery. God transcends creation. He is completely and utterly different than creation. He is infinitely greater than creation but yet he is present to creation. We call this divine eminence, in which God is completely other than creation, but yet is present to everything in creation and sustains it. So we say that pantheism is a problem, that you know, everything is not God. You know, the, the marker is not God. The flower is not God. The rock is not God. The, the podium is not God. Um, but yet God is present to this marker and sustains it. So we can say then that, you know, we often talk about how God is, you know, here. Well, God is present by eminence. Im- he somehow sustains everything. But he is, of course, not the marker. And the marker is not him.
And as you know, we will see, especially when we cover the, the incarnation and the sacraments, is that there are different intensity levels of how God is present. To the point of Christ's real presence in the Blessed Sacrament, in which he is physically, that is physically his body and blood, soul and divinity. Which is a whole different kind of presence. But the most fundamental and basic presence, what we call this eminence, is that God is present to everything that exists. That's why they exist. That's what sustains them. He upholds them. God upholds and sustains creation is the very next paragraph, 301. He not only gives them being and existence, but also and at every moment upholds and sustains them in being, enables them to act, and brings them to their final end. Now, Therefore, we, go, we now move into, I think, the most crucial sections of this. Let me check my clock ever so briefly. Of course, I didn't give myself enough time for it, but we'll be fine. It's the idea of providence and of primary and secondary causality. So first of all, we are reminded of the truth. You may not have known this, so listen, this is very important. We live in an imperfect world. Did you know? This world is imperfect. I don't know if you knew that or not. The Catechism reminds us that the universe was created in a state of journeying toward an ultimate perfection yet to be attained, to which God has destined. So we live in an imperfect world, a world that is journeying towards perfection. And the process by which it journeys towards perfection is what we call divine providence. God is guiding the world to become perfect. Now we might say, well, why didn't God create a perfect world? Well, because an imperfect world is better than a perfect world. In an imperfect world, we have a certain dignity to contribute, to share in the process by which the world becomes perfect. If the world was made perfect, there would be no need for us to exercise our reason, to exercise our will, and it really would not be out of love either because we would not have a response to what God is doing or any share in his work. That's why an imperfect world is better than a perfect world. In a perfect world, in an imperfect world, we can love God. We can freely choose to love God and we can cooperate and work with him in the process of the world becoming perfect. This is at the heart of these, these first, um, first five paragraphs, 302 to 305, is really embracing this idea that the world is um, imperfect, but that imperfect is better than perfect. And then we are set up two crucial distinctions. 
the distinction between God's pri- between primary and secondary causes. And then the difference between um, moral and physical evil. Primary causes is how the primary cause is how God causes. Exercising his sovereign will, he intends things. And those are always good. So the act of creation. You know, the initial act of creation. God is the sovereign master of his plan, but to carry it out, he also makes use of creatures' cooperation. This use is not a sign of weakness, but rather a token of Almighty God's greatness and goodness. For God grants his creatures not only their existence, but also the dignity of acting on their own, of being causes and principles for each other, and thus of of cooperating in the accomplishment of his plan. So God allows us to cooperate, and that's what we call secondary causalities, is how created things cooperate with God in this process by which the imperfect world moves towards perfection. A secondary cause exercises its causality, the way it causes, based on its nature. So everything that's created can in some way exercise a causality, be like a secondary causality, have a secondary causality. God permits us, so it's his permissive will, to exercise this secondary causality. He uses his sovereign will to exercise his primary causality. He creates. And then he permits us to cooperate with him based on our nature. So, for instance, the tree that you planted in your front yard, this beautiful American sycamore, which some people hate because it drops branches, It grows tall and beautiful in your front yard, and its roots slowly break up your sidewalks and go into your sewage line. Um, This sycamore is affecting this, this world by its nature. Its roots grow towards nitrogen rich resources coming from your sewer line. and it breaks up rocks. It's exercising its secondary causality. Human beings and angelic beings are free and rational. They exercise their, their reason and their freedom differently. But they exercise their secondary causality through their choices. So... You know, um, I choose to do this, and it somehow affects the world. God permitted that to happen. This then sets up our two types of evils, moral and physical evil. We're reminded that only Christian faith can make sense out of evil. 
There is physical evil. Physical evil, we're told in paragraph 310, that with the infinite power, God could always create something better. Again, we're journeying towards a better world. But with infinite wisdom and goodness, God freely willed to create a world in the state of journeying. We hear that again. Towards its ultimate perfection. In God's plan, this process of becoming involves the appearances of certain things and the disappearance of others. The existence of the more perfect alongside the less perfect. Both constructive and destructive forces of nature. With physical good, there exists also physical evil as long as creation has not reached its perfection. So there is physical evil. Things like, so for instance, tectonic plates. They work according to their nature, and they like to either slide next to each other, rub up against each other, or slide under each other, or things like that. And thus, earthquakes occur, and volcanoes occur, these, of course, create suffering, but they are, in a sense, a physical evil. It's just the way that tectonic plates work. Or so, for instance, you know, a mighty river, say the Mississippi, miles long at points, or miles wide at points, it goes towards the sea, and there's a low area in the shape of a bowl, and the Mississippi flows into that. Well, this is, um, you know, this is somewhat of a physical evil if you decide to build a city in that bowl, which continually floods. But it is the nature of how rivers work. It is how they exercise their secondary causality. But we experience it as physical evil because of the destruction. Now, one might say the flooding of a city like New Orleans, is that a physical evil because it's the river that's flooding it? Or is it a moral evil because we continue to build a city in that place by the exercise? And that sets up what moral evil is. Moral evil is evil in the world and it, the Catechism tells us it's even more harmful and worse than physical evil. that happens because of a free being, an angel or a human's exercise of their freedom. That's a moral evil. So if someone comes and murders you or comes to burn down your house, these kind of things, the evil, the suffering that happens, that's what we would call a moral evil. In both the moral evil and the physical evil, it is by secondary causality, which God permits. He does not intend. He permits it. He does not directly intend it. But the Catechism reminds us that even though he permits this evil both the moral evil and the physical evil, he brings an infinite good out of this. That from this moral and physical evil, although we can't quite understand it at the time, 
the Lord will somehow bring out goodness and bring the world closer to perfection. This is, of course, as we said earlier, can only make sense with our belief in Jesus Christ. That the God-man himself would suffer moral and physical evil, all kinds of moral and physical evil, that he would endure those things, and that from those moral and physical evils which Christ endured, God brings out, brings the greatest, the infinite good, the resurrection and our redemption, our salvation. That's the ultimate way that the Catechism is going to propose that, that we can make sense out of these things. It helps to understand the difference between primary and secondary causality, the difference between moral and physical evil, the idea that God permits some things, he permits evil even, but he does not intend it but he permits it so that he might bring good out of it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you all. If you have any questions, we can take those. Is part is the exercise. So human beings exercise their secondary causality through their free will. So I make a choice. Angels do the same as well, but in a different way. So. Even before the fall, God intended to create an imperfect world. So God did not even... Now, what that looks like, we don't know for sure because we had the fall, so that it kind of messed up the, the perspective. But even in the fall, it was, in a sense, an imperfect world because it was, always, it could have, it was contingent upon Adam and Eve on that freedom, that exercise of freedom. So we might say that you know, so imperfect can mean it's a mess, but it can also mean that it hasn't been determined yet. And so the plan hadn't been, you know, like it was, it, it was based on what Adam and Eve, how they're going to play this out. And so in that sense, we can understand it. I know when we hear imperfect, we think, how horrible, you know, or, you know. But it also, if we understand it in that, well, this world is, is also dependent on what we are going to say about it, then in that way. It, you know. Yeah.
Well, um, you know, that's a good question. I mean, we, we, should, we ought never to do a moral evil, you know. Um, so I would say that if someone is, if someone is justifying that, it's presumption. You know, in the sense that somehow God... I mean, yes, we know that God will bring a good out of it, but we, we, you know, we ought... Exactly, yeah. I mean, you... To kind of presume that... I haven't met anyone that has done that yet, but I'm sure that there are people out there that do that. You know, that they're like, well, I'm going to go ahead and do this because it's going to make the world better. Now, the question is... is what is what they're doing a moral evil? And that, you know, you have to look at the particular situation, you know. It may look like a moral evil. So, for instance, if someone was going to shoot Hitler, how you might think, is that a moral evil? Or is that a justifiable self-defense? And then that's, that's a whole other where that's like section num that's part number three of the catechism, so that's kind of far that's far that's much farther down the line. So but that that can be yeah, yeah, yeah. That'll be in year two, so we'll <laughs> when we get that answer, yeah. Yeah, well, because if for God to be God, he has to be one. And so one of those three, therefore, has to be God. Um, but they've all revealed, it, we've, we, it has been revealed that there are these three divine persons. So then the, the Trinity is, a, is, a, is the attempt to try to figure out, okay, God has said that he is one, but he's also revealed himself as these three divine persons. So for, in order for God to be one and to be three divine persons, then therefore there must be this, this trinity, that he is one in three persons. But it, it, it means a lot, because if we just believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that they're not one, then that means that ultimately there is no God because the very definition of God is that there's one. Or it means that two of the three aren't divine, which is contrary to what they've revealed themselves as. So therefore, then, revelation itself is untrustworthy. Well, the Son has revealed him. The Son has revealed that the Holy Spirit is divine. Yeah. Oh. I would also say the Father has revealed that he is too. Circumincession. I it's C I R C U M 
I-N-C-E-S-S-I-O-N. I'm not much of a speller. Perichoresis is the Greek. P-E-R-I-C-H-E-R-I-E-S. Yeah, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Well, and all of them. And that's why an explanation like this helps us individually begin to make sense out of it, but it's not necessarily going to help someone else make sense out of it. You know, it's something we have to wrestle with. And that's why ultimately when someone's suffering, we don't try to explain to them why they're suffering. One, because we cannot never understand what they're going through. But second is that any attempt is kind of trite, you know, like, so what you try to do is you just have to point to Christ and say, listen, this man suffered every evil and he was victorious in the end. But it was a victory that didn't look like a a normal victory. You know, he rose from the dead. So even if you die, so the idea, you know, um, it's interesting, like, if we had, so um, disease is in some sense a moral evil because it comes from the fall of the human race, even though we don't necessarily choose it. Although some people do choose the lifestyle that leads to their illness, you know, in some cases, you know. Um, but it's also a physical evil. And that's why I think disease and death is so, is so difficult for us to figure out, is because it's both a moral evil and a physical evil. Um, and death itself is, in some ways, a moral evil and a physical evil. So death has happened because of the fall of the human race. But also we know that bodies... Break, you know, bodies break down. Like, would Adam and Eve have lived forever if there wasn't a fall? I mean, who knows? But you know, eventually they would have wanted something, something more, maybe. You know, um, so that's what makes it very difficult. Um, in some ways, you know, physical evil is harder to deal with because I didn't choose this. You know, my house burned down because of, of some shortage, you know. Or, I mean, that's more, um, or like a disease that comes, you know, cancer comes that I, I didn't. I wasn't Adam and Eve, you know. You know, or, and I um, didn't smoke or do anything, you know, to cause this. Um, and, and it doesn't, in some sense, it doesn't make sense. Not just from the sense of, justice, you know, but you just can't make any sense out of it. Um, and that's why I think ultimately is when we, in, when we endure suffering, we have to kind of just embrace it, you know, and just say, okay, you know, I don't know why you're doing this or why you're letting this happen, but you, as the catechism tells us, you're the one who created everything out of nothing. And you're the one who rose Jesus from the dead. So therefore, whatever your plan is, it's going to work out.
And if without that, we can't make any sense. You know, other people try to explain, you know, evil and suffering. Other, um, and it and it always kind of limps. Either God is is thrusting this upon me to test me, which is kind of bad. You know, like that's not a kind of God you want to serve. Or that it's meaningless. You know, like oh well. No, like, I actually feel pain, like, pain is real. You know, it's not some figment of my imagination that I have to ignore. Christianity, at, at least, that well, the Catholic proposal is, is that, it, you know, it's the only one that treats it as a mystery, but treats it as something real, too. And, um, like I said, ultimately, Christ is the only way to make sense out of it. This is listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio. You've been listening to Catechesis from the Cathedral with Father Adam Streitenberger. If you'd like to listen to this episode again, download it, or share it with a friend, please visit stgabrielradio.com, go to our audio archives, and look for Catechesis from the Cathedral. Thanks so much for joining us today. God bless, and have a great day.